we are talking about uh, ways in which we know things and how it is uh, described in the different tenet systems, specifically in terms of how we know the self, me, person. And we have uh, covered the difference between self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon and imputedly knowable phenomenon. We saw that uh, self-sufficiently knowable <coughs> phenomenon do not require the cognition of anything else before it in order to be able to, uh, before them, in order to be able to cognize them. And the examples are forms of physical phenomenon like uh, our body and ways of uh, knowing like our happiness or unhappiness or various emotions. And imputedly knowable phenomenon cover both uh, non-congruent affecting variables, so those are uh, non-static phenomenon, they change every moment, and these include uh, persons like uh, me, our main topic, and uh, other such uh, phenomenon like motion and age. But uh, also imputedly knowable are static phenomenon like categories and uh, selflessness or voidness. We saw that uh, for imputedly knowable phenomenon, that uh, uh, these are phenomenon with a basis for imputation. And uh, in the case of uh, non-congruent affecting variables, these are, uh, um, well, we've been using the term imputation, so basis for imputation for them. But when it comes to uh, categories, we were using the term uh, labeling basis for labeling. With uh, both persons and selflessness, let's just leave it uh, at uh, those two as representing the two different types of uh, imputedly knowable phenomenon. Uh, the um, Well, it gets a little bit complicated with uh, selflessness, so maybe that wasn't the best example to use. <laughs> but uh, with uh, non-congruent affecting variables like uh, a person, the uh, basis for imputation, like uh, something within our aggregates, and the uh, person, both are the appearing object uh, when we see someone, if we speak in terms of the Sartrantica system, but uh, in that first moment, only the uh, uh, body, for instance, is the uh, involved object. In other words, uh, what we actually ascertain with uh, uh, certainty. If this is uh, sensory perception, non-conceptual sensory perception, and uh, that uh, person is uh, too subtle for us to be able to ascertain in that uh, first moment, but uh, it, uh, it appears, and it's only in the second moment that we're able to uh, have as our involved object uh, both the person and the uh, aggregates, let's say the body that's uh, appearing. Both of them would be known simultaneously. When we... Uh, 
think in terms of a, uh, a person or of anything uh, actually then there is the mental representation and there's the category category is uh, mentally labeled on the representation of uh, let's say a body or a person something like that person through a body uh, as its basis of uh, imputation but uh, again in that first moment uh, only the uh, uh, representation would be the involved object and in the second moment it would be the representation plus the category so it works like that and we also saw that in the uh, Mahayana systems starting with Chittamatra but also including Madhyamaka both Satrantika and uh, both Svatantrika and Prasangika that uh, there's an exception to this uh, rule with uh, uh, selflessness and voidness that uh, although uh, we need to uh, ascertain the basis for the uh, voidness uh, first, uh, nevertheless, uh, we, when we focus on voidness, although it is an imputation on that basis, only the voidness itself appears and is the involved object. So the basis for imputation doesn't uh, appear and is not involved in that total absorption on voidness. This is what we've uh, covered so far. I know it's a bit complicated, but uh, anyway, hopefully by now you've become a little bit uh, familiar with the systems. What I'd like to uh, start now is a discussion of the relation between wholes and parts, which is uh, actually a very interesting topic and uh, very relevant when we uh, start to wonder about uh, what does it mean to know somebody, to know a person, to know ourselves. Uh, what do we have to know in order to say that we uh, know ourselves? Is it possible to know ourselves completely? Is it possible to know somebody else completely? What does it actually uh, mean? So if we think in terms of the application of this topic, it uh, actually is quite relevant and quite interesting. So a place to start with this uh, discussion is looking at non-conceptual sensory perception or cognition of a whole form of a physical phenomenon such as a body and its parts. The body is uh, self-sufficiently knowable, although it doesn't require cognition of all its parts to be known. It does require cognition of at least some of its parts simultaneously with it. That's sort of the general overview of uh, what we're talking about when we see a body. Obviously, you don't see the entire body. We can't see uh, all sides of the body, for example. So uh, the body is self-sufficiently knowable. But actually, when we talk about the different parts of, a of uh, something, like a body, there are three different types of parts. There are cognitive parts, namely different sensory qualities, that would be sensory uh, data, sight, 
sound, smell, taste, and texture. So actually, uh, what we see are uh, colored shapes. What we hear are sounds. What we uh, know through uh, our nose consciousness are smells, and so on. So that's uh, one type of uh, cognitive uh, part. And we just, in general, we would say that uh, when we... Uh, uh, see something, we only see colored shapes. We don't see sounds or uh, smells, that type of thing. Then there are physical parts, which are limbs, a trunk, a head, you know, arms, legs, uh, all of that. And then there are temporal parts. These are moments during which a bodily holds its individual essential nature. That would be the definition. In other words, it's conventional identity. Um, as long as it retains something retains its conventional identity, then it is uh, extending over temporal parts. If you have a piece of paper, as long as it stays as a piece of paper, then each moment is a temporal part of that piece of paper. If it uh, uh, burns and turns into ashes and smoke, then those ashes and smoke Although it's a continuity, let's say, of the atoms of the uh, paper, it's no longer uh, retaining its conventional identity as a piece of paper, so those wouldn't be included as parts. So we have all these parts, right? Uh, when we talk about uh, a whole object, like a body. Excuse me, one thing. which system are we in? Uh, this is general, everybody this accepts general? this. Okay. Everybody accepts this. I mean, this is the nature of uh, conventional truth. Well, it depends on which system we talk about conventional truth, but it is the nature of common sense objects. Common sense objects extend over uh, all the sensory data. They extend over all of their parts, uh, physical parts, and they extend over their temporal parts, you know, for as long as it retains its uh, conventional identity. There's a big difference, however, between the true aspectarian and the false aspectarian um, divisions of Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and uh, Sautrantika, or Madhyamaka in general. The true aspectarians say that we actually see a whole when uh, we uh, uh, cognize any of these parts because in fact we only have one moment of uh, cognition at a time so it's only one moment of an object that we're seeing in one moment and we're only uh, getting the information of one sense and we're only uh, we're limited in how much inform how much data we can take in if that in that one moment nevertheless the true aspectarians which are uh, basically, which is basically the, the position held by the Glupa tradition, is that we also see conventional objects, conventional whole, common sense objects, whereas the uh, false aspectarians, which are, is the position that is held by the non-Glupa traditions, Sakya, Nyingma, and uh, Kargyu, is that uh, uh, we don't see non-conceptually hold objects, but uh, that these are mental constructs. They are conceptual cognitions. It is a concept 
that is a synthesis of uh, all these various three types of parts. That uh, is what actually would appear in a conceptual cognition. And of course, there are many, many ramifications that follow from uh, this uh, difference. Um, we don't really need to go into uh, all of them, but uh, it really affects the whole nature of uh, what is known as non-conceptual cognition. And what is the aim of gaining non-conceptual cognition and meditation and so on. So, anyway. Why don't you think about that for a moment, actually? What does uh, make sense? When we see something, do we see a conventional object, or is that just a, a mental construct, the whole object? What does it feel like? Um, what does it feel like? I mean, it feels like we're true aspectarian, I guess. But if you, go, if you look at the Western theory of perception and cognition and senses and how the brain puts together all the stimuli, I would rather tend to the false aspectarian. Uh, right, but it is, is it conceptual or not? Um, you know, although the brain in our neural network synthesizes a, uh, an object, a whole object, so we refer to this as a mental hologram. Is that conceptual or non-conceptual? You know, Buddhism would not find it contradictory to say that the brain puts together an image. Mm -hmm. That's why it's called true aspectarian or false aspectarian. False aspectarian is that aspect, that mental hologram that arises, is that in a non-conceptual cognition or a conceptual one. So how would you start to analyze that? Maybe one good example would be how if you put the letters of a word in the wrong order, we can still read the word correctly because we're so used to knowing the word. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, if you mix up the, the order of the letters, it's not so obvious. But if you leave out the vowels in uh, an English word, you can usually tell what word it is yes, by the context. But that's not uh, how you would start the analysis of, uh, is this uh, mental hologram appearing in a conceptual cognition or a non-conceptual cognition? And it is said often that you see what you expect to see, and do you feel in the blanks of a lot of things that you're not really perceiving. So in that sense, it would, I would say conceptual. Right, but conceptual always follows a moment of non-conceptual. So we're talking about the first moment. So maybe the raw moment, I guess I could accept it's non-conceptual. Right. Well, you start the analysis by what is the definition of a conceptual? What is the difference between a conceptual and a non-conceptual? You need to really learn how you analyze things. And the first thing that you go to in any analysis is the definition of terms. So. What is the difference between a conceptual and a non-conceptual cognition? What does a conceptual cognition have that a non-conceptual doesn't? A concept. Hmm? A concept. A concept. What is a concept? It's a 
static phenomenon. And what kind? What do we call these static phenomenon? Categories. Categories, right? So there's a category when in the very beginning of uh, the mental of the mental of the synthesis that we will acknowledge is done in the brain. Is there a category? What comes together with the category? A word, a name, and judgmental qualities, what you were saying, Jorge. Those go together in the with the category. The associations of the category. Is at least one of those or all of those? No, it doesn't. Cannot, well, it does, there doesn't have to be a, a word or a name. And with the category, with the judgmental aspects of it, don't have to be there either. But if they are, then it's conceptual. One of the three is enough. Which one is important? Well, category is, is essential. It's a category. So the cavortical, the barn. Pardon? Category barn. A category me as opposed to you. Each time that I see you, it's uh, I fit it in the category of, of you not somebody else. But if we leave it at just physical objects, every time that I see a particular piece of fruit, then I fit it into, if it is a, a, a certain kind of fruit, I fit it into the category apple. But initially, but when I see the apple, when I see this piece of fruit, I don't see all sides of it. I don't see what's inside it, underneath the skin. I don't see the taste of it. But do I see a whole object that extends over the all its sensory parts, its uh, uh, physical parts and its temporal parts. Am I seeing a whole object? We're not talking about, you know, anything further than that. Is there any danger if we focus only on the perception of the objects instead of trying to make them into concepts is there a problem of only focusing on the object without fitting it into the category is this what you're yeah. asking um, well unless you're a Buddha yes there's a problem because otherwise uh, every time that I see this fruit I don't know whether it's an apple or a pear or a banana, 
for that matter. So how do I know what it is if I don't fit it into a category? Is that ignorance or what is this? If That's not ignorance. That's Well, that is the general ignorance of, of you could see something and not know what it is. If you've never seen... Um, I don't know, we usually fit things into something, into some category. I mean, it could be an unknown. I mean, you have that in science, don't you? When you observe something and uh, you say it's an unknown. You don't know what it is. But still, you consider it a thing. So that, you know, of course, could be with self-established existence that it is. It's a thing. I don't know what it is, but it's a thing. A phenomenon. Can't explain it, but it's a phenomenon. It's something, something is there. So that's grasping for the self-established true existence of something. But conventionally, there's something. So you always fit it into some category. And it's always something. You can see an animal and not know what it is, a mongoose. But you know, it's an animal, it's not a, a plant. There are really pros and cons for both uh, positions of uh, whether we actually see whole objects or not. The advantage, I think, uh, or I find, of the true aspectarian, which is the one that I'm most familiar with, the Galupa position, is that it is uh, it's a position that's more conducive for developing compassion and for uh, accepting the uh, level of validity that conventional truth has, if we speak in terms of prasangika. Like less prone to nihilism? N less prone to nihilism, more prone to uh, absolutism. Mm -hmm. So this is the, uh, what should we say, the point of contention and what each side accuses the other of. Okay. Um, I just would like to add something. Yes, please. I find it I find it difficult to say that there are concepts uh, evolving in the brain. Yeah. What do you mean evolving? Or Organically growing? Like there, are, there are concepts uh, in the brain, or like categories that uh, uh, are in the brain. So I find it difficult just to to say like this because the brain. Certainly, something material and not a concept, so it's difficult. There's something I, I would rather say something like, uh, what is it? Uh, correspond something corresponding or in the brain going on with a concept, but the concept is certainly not in the brain. Well, first of all, nothing is findable from. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so you can't find a concept uh, in the brain. Conventional, conventional. And the categories. We speak of categories. Concepts are usually a category with many associations. 
But uh, a category isn't something that is activate, activated in a sense in every single cognition that we have, except for the category of self-established existence. That's going to be present in uh, every moment of our uh, 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 conceptual cognition, certainly, mm. and it would be it would give the appearance of true existence in our uh, non-conceptual cognition. But uh, have to be a little bit careful how you say that. But uh, in any case, a category of an apple is only active when I think about apples. When I don't think about apples, then there would be a tendency as an imputation on the mental continuum of that uh, category. It's like memories. Memories are exactly the same thing. They are tendencies, so non-associated, non-congruent aff uh, affecting variable. It's an imputation on the mental continuum that uh, with certain conditions then gives rise to what it is a uh, tendency for. Mm -hmm. So it would give rise to uh, that category in the thought, but it's not there all the time. And these tendencies as well are not um, something physical that you can find. So if you now have to be careful, Mr. Science is here, but uh, I would say that uh, you could say that there are certain, um, for want of a better expression, well-greased neural pathways that you could that you could say as an imputation on them. There is a tendency for them to fire in a certain sequence that would give rise to a certain category of thought. Would that make any sense? Yeah, and I don't think we can even describe it in a much more detailed fashion. We're not really that, that far in the understanding of detailed mechanistic explanation of how thought and categorization works in the brain. But something like this, is, you can definitely say. Right, so that would be the physical basis. Yeah. You know, I, I would, uh, a physical basis that you, you, you would say that there is a physical, you need a physical basis for thought. I would say there's something correlated going on in the brain in some material on a on a material level that corresponds to the thought. I could I could go with this, but I, I would not I, I would not uh, agree that uh, you necessarily need a brain to generate a thought. So that would you could generate a thought from the table. <laughs> the table could have a thought. No, I, I would think, for example. Uh, I just take the example of, uh, let's say, a celestial being that can think, or of a Buddha or whoever, who has no brain and still can think. That should be possible, huh? <laughs> well, the brain is not included in any of the uh, uh, conceptual frameworks of the different types of uh, phenomenon. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, there, there would be, first of all, if we look at uh, the description in Tantra, where it says that you have uh, um, this one phenomenon, which uh, has one essential nature, same essential nature, and the um, two different conceptual isolates. In other words, you could isolate conceptually one aspect of it, which is that it's a way of knowing, and another aspect of it, which is that it is a type of subtle energy. So now, what is the relation between the way of knowing the consciousness and the uh, energy? Well, the way that it's usually described is uh, someone with eyes riding on the shoulders of a blind person. You know, a crippled person riding on the shoulders of a blind person. Uh, would you say that it is the basis for imputation? That's a difficult uh, thing. You would say that one is, the terms that are used, is something supported and something that supports it. That's the technical terminology that you have. Condition, would it be, Pardon? A contributing condition, I would think. It's not the cause, but a contributing condition. That's what it appears to my mind. Well, a contributing condition, uh, but it's a necessary condition. Yeah. If you want to use that uh, yeah, necessary way. contributing condition, but it's not the... Well, supporting. It supports yeah. it. It makes it possible. Yeah, correlate and contributing condition is too little for me. That's... Are what for you? It's too little. It's too little. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a contributing condition could also be life. Yeah. It's alive. I mean, there are a lot of contributing conditions. Physical support. It's the physical support. But in the Bardo scriptures, it's always this, this even in the clear light state, you, you would, or even the Buddha would have this, this very subtlest energy. Energy as a No problem with the subtle energy. But that is the correlate for a body. I think Alex was right saying that there's never, they never talk about the brain in, in Buddhism very much, but they always talk about the body and it's. Well, what it, the way that it's set, is formulated is that this uh, subtlest energy then uh, becomes an imputation on uh, first subtle elements, which would be in the bardo, and then on gross elements, which would be uh, with the rebirth in the desire realm. Yeah, so. Uh, and in that sense, as an imputation on it, it's not the same as a, and of course the self is an imputation on that, it's not the same as an Atman, a solid thing, going into it and activating it. So, you see, it's a very similar idea as Atman, in the sense that there is something that comes and is in addition to the physical basis 
that then makes it alive. But what is the relation? And the relation is not one solid thing going inside another solid thing and turning on the buttons and uh, working it like a machine. But rather it is, in, you know, the self then and the, the subtlest energy and so on is then an imputation on the basis of these grosser elements. And then you have the whole understanding of the relation between uh, what is imputed and, you know, the, imp the imputation, the basis for imputation and what it refers to that we have in Prasangika. You see? From that, I would, I would think that probably from that follows that between thought and brain there is a similar correlation that you know that corresponds to that understanding. Right. Not, mm -hmm. You know, it is only biologically triggered and it's not something else. Then right. And instead of speaking of the specific, you know, brain and neurons and nervous system and so and so on, the Buddhist description just leaves it at the level of the five elements. I just, I just, uh, my, my point was just to make, uh, to, uh, to, uh, it sounded uh, beforehand like, oh, there are thoughts in the brain, like this, or, oh, yeah, no, you know, it's like, right. well, that's uh, just a, the whole thing that we hear yeah. all the time in the media, you know, right. uh, oh, yeah, my mind is here in the brain, and uh, it's right. correlated to the mind, yes, and uh, there are strong connections with the energies. And with a physical basis in terms of energy, but the thoughts are where in the brain are the Right, well this is why I always, uh, when I describe mind, first thing that I say is that we're not talking about mind, a thing. We're talking about mental activity. And that mental activity can be described from a material point of view of physically what's going on, or it could be described from a subjective experiential point of view. When we talk about mind, we're talking about mental activity described from the point of view of an exper of subjective experiential phenomena. So then it becomes clearer, or clearer, I think. I hope. So, when <laughs> to get back to uh, topic, so we're talking, you know, we'll just leave our discussion. At, uh, at the level of the true aspectarians. And uh, with that interpretation, then when we cognize non-conceptually with a specific sense consciousness, a part of a body, like the colored shapes of the sight of a body in one moment, we also cognize non-conceptually a whole common-sense body that pervades all its sensory data and extends over time. So this is included within self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon, the whole and its parts. So it's not that we have to first see a part and then in the second moment we see the whole, but rather we see the whole and its parts simultaneously. And then there's what will follow from this is a huge discussion of what that actually means and how that works. But the whole and the parts constitute 
a self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon in this sense. And the reason for this is that we also non-conceptually see the collection synthesis and the kind synthesis that are imputations on each moment of these types of sensory data. So we have to introduce now two types of syntheses. According to the true aspectarian, these are objective phenomenon. In relation to a body, they are forms of physical phenomenon. False aspectarians would say that these are mental syntheses which are conceptual. So what is a collection synthesis? It is a synthesis of collection of all the parts. So we can speak of it in terms of the cognitive parts, the physical parts, or the temporal parts. So that's a collection synthesis, and that's a form of physical phenomenon. A whole apple is a form of physical phenomenon, not just the colored shapes of the apple. Kind synthesis, and this is uh, a little bit uh, trickier, is also a form of physical phenomenon. It is the kind of thing that it is, objectively. So this we have to understand, of course, in terms of the non-Galupa systems of something uh, established from the side of the object. You know, we'll get to the Prasangika view after this, and we're talking about the uh, all the other views you know, of the tenant systems that are non prasangika within the galupa way of interpreting them. So, what kind of object this is, is established from the side of the object, and that's an objective fact. So when we see an animal, and we don't know what it is, we might know that it's a thing, we might know that it is an animal, but from its, but that's not necessarily what's going on in the, that non-conceptual cognition. In the moment of non-conceptual cognition, you know, to know that it's an animal, you know, to understand that, that's conceptual, fit it into a category. But uh, in that moment, when we see this thing, what is it? It's not just colored shapes that we're seeing. It's a whole object. And objectively, whether we know it or not, it's a mongoose. That's the kind of object it is. That's the kind synthesis. Now, this is not so easy to differentiate the kind synthesis from the category. Kind synthesis is an objective fact established on the side of the object of what kind of thing it is. It is some kind of thing. Like other things that are 
that also that kind of thing. But you don't know. You don't need to know the name. Not only do you not need to know the name, you don't need to know anything else. I mean, you don't need to know even that there are other things like that. If it is an objective fact established on the side of the object. We only know what it is when we fit it into a category. Nevertheless, we see it. Does that make sense? I mean, I think that is our usual way of perceiving things. If I see you, I don't know what your name is. Nevertheless, you have a name. Right? So it's like that. Well, forget about Prasanga. Prasanga is not going to agree with any of this. So let's put this aside. Prasanga, we'll get to Prasanga. All the schools other than Prasanga, and Vaibhashka has its own special way of explaining things. So we're talking about Sautrantika, Chittamatra, and Svatantrika. And Chittamatra, of course, is going to have this whole thing of no external phenomenon. So that becomes a little bit more complex. So basically, I'm explaining now from the Sautrantika point of view. That's the basis. Then we can modify it according to the higher schools. That's the way that we always approach these topics. Start with the most basic, uh, so-called simplest explanation, and then modify it. So, when we see something, the appearing object is the uh, part, the whole and kind uh, synthesis, and we would also say the person. If I see the colored shapes, see the colored shapes, right? That's what I'm seeing. I'm also seeing a, seeing a thing, a whole object, and I'm seeing a body. What kind of object is it? And I'm seeing a person. In that first moment, I mean, all of those are appearing. In that first moment, what is the involved object? You know, what do I actually you know, ascertain, you know, what am I focusing on? First, what has to register? A body, I mean, the whole object, the colored shapes and a whole object. And then, the second moment, also the person. Okay? So think of that. Collection synthesis and kind synthesis are forms of physical phenomenon in this case. A whole object, 
and a kind of object, a body. So on these non-static, changing colored shapes as a basis for, of imputation, there are imputed on it whole object, the collection synthesis and the kind synthesis. These are forms of physical phenomenon as well as non-congruent affecting variables including such as person and motion and impermanence. So there are two kinds of imputed phenomenon here. Within non-static phenomenon. There are also static things in, imputed, that are imputations on it, like space and selflessness. But let's not complicate it even further. You follow that? The whole and the person is imputed. The whole and the person are imputational phenomena. Nobody has to actively impute them for them to be objectively true. That always has to be kept in mind. It's not like a mental label or a, de a, a category or a designation with a word, which is optional. That comes in the second moment. That comes in the second moment. Cognizing it. It's there. Well, the category is well, the category isn't there. And the word isn't there. So no, they're not there. But things like Selflessness is, is there, voidness is there, space is there. So you have to distinguish within, uh, within static phenomenon those that are always the case and those that are optional. I mean, when we talk about mental labeling, that's only of categories. We wouldn't say mental labeling in terms of voidness or space. Those are imputations. Any other questions? I have maybe one clarification. From this chart, it follows that um, the person is only in the second moment, it's also in, involved. I'm sorry. In the second, it also 
yeah, is an involved object, right? Right, involved in terms of you actually know it with certainty. Person appears from the very start. When you see when you see a body, unless it's a dead body. Because when you have it is involved, so you it, you, know, you are certain it is there and it has a kind already. It's really very close to putting a category on it. Well, this is what I said is very, you know, very difficult to distinguish the difference from its own side. It is a kind of thing. It's a body. It's a person. Now, all things that are that kind of object would fit into the category of that object when you think about it. But even when you don't think about it, you are seeing a person, you are seeing a body. But kind wouldn't extend to, for example, female or male. That's already a category. Kind would also, no, kind would. Kind in German could be um, already have a label like that. Well, no, I mean, male or female would be the category. I mean, male and you could have the kind of thing it is a uh, um, male or female. Well, this gets a little bit uh, complicated, and I can't really, because, uh, you know, in our modern ways of looking at things, gender is a, uh, what do you call it? Fluid. Hmm? Like fluid, a continuum. Is a continuum. More fluid. Hmm? So that becomes uh, a little bit more, what shall we say? It doesn't quite fit into the Buddhist way of analyzing it. Male and female, then, because it is a, uh, would you say spectrum? Or what was the word? It's a continuum. Mm -hmm. Then uh, that's also like uh, fat or thin, or pretty or ugly. So these are. I forget the uh, technical word, but these are things that you know conceptually because they're relative. Yeah, this is why we had in the Chittamatra saying that the defining characteristic on the side of the object is uh, uh, not a platform on which the concept of these uh, things like fat and thin and so on uh, can fit. In other words, uh, it's not as though there's a defining characteristic of fat or male or female on the side of the object. It has to do from the concept and how the concept is, the category, how it's defined. So Chittamatra makes that quite uh, clear. From Sautrantika's point of view, there is the defining characteristic of short or fat on the side of the uh, object, as far as I remember. 
I might be incorrect with that, but I think so. So what kind of object it is, still you'd have to say, person, human being, but even human being becomes difficult, you know, when you start to... Well, the way that it's described here is that it's pretty definite. I think we're confusing the non-prasangika with the prasangika. From a prasangika point of view, even human being is a concept, is a category. Because where do you draw the line? I mean, look at uh, all the stuff that goes on in, uh, what is it? Is it anthropology or archaeology or anthropology in terms of uh, where is the dividing line between an ape and a human, between Neanderthal and Homo sapiens, etc. So, uh, and there were several human beings before, pardon? several species of human beings. The species, but I mean, how? where do you draw the boundary of the species? That also is... They could enter, they, uh, they, they could have children also together, so... Right, well, yeah, they could have children together, so that makes things even more complicated. So, uh, the, our modern view would tend to, scientific point of view, would tend more toward prasangika, nevertheless, for those who are not so well versed, like our friends here, you know, in these more sophisticated uh, theories, like our friends here, Sautrantika and so on, you would say, well, this is a human, this is a male, this is a female. Or this is the category of, you know, don't know. You know, something like that. Because they had the category in uh, ancient times of uh, hermaphrodite, for example. I mean, there were several different categories. And um, something, someone with no gender, you have uh, in uh, the higher realms, there's no, gen no gender, for example. Or, you know, the, anyway, there are these different um, kinds of beings. But there is a difference. So kind, you would have to say, kind synthesis and a category. The difference is the kind synthesis is established from the side of the object and the category is established from the side of the mind. Does that make it a little bit clearer? Mm that makes also clear that Prasangika wouldn't, wouldn't allow for that. Yeah. A would not, absolutely not allow for that. Yeah. Chidamatra would allow for kind, but uh, differentiating then kind from qualities. You know, like uh, fat and skinny, or good or bad.
although it starts to get a little bit more tricky when uh, you get into constructive and destructive. I'm a bit confused with that. Are you saying that type is binary always? That what? Type is binary? Type is binary? Is this what you're no, saying? you wouldn't oh. say, well, binary in the sense of either it is or it isn't. Oh. In that sense, binary. Either it's an apple or it's a pear. Mm -hmm. I might not be able to tell the difference. And it could be a hybrid, which is both, in a sense. But regardless, it's, it's some kind. It's some kind of fruit. A hybrid uh, wouldn't be a hybrid being neither this nor another completely different thing. Well, maybe it is. But if you take, but if you think in terms of, well, you know, that I'm, what I'm thinking of is the, uh, you know, the, the the classic tetralemma, x or y or both x and y or not neither x nor y. So there are different phenomena that uh, can be analyzed in terms of if it's an animal it's a uh, you know if it's a dog it's an animal but if it's an animal it's not necessarily a dog i mean you get into all these classification schemes so what kind of things something is would also have to be analyzed in terms of uh you know in some cases there are only two possibilities in some cases there's three possibilities in some cases there's four I think you'd have to say that. Just the because the, you know, what we will get into, we don't have time uh, today, is the defining characteristics for each of these kinds of phenomenon. And according to these non-prasangika systems, these defining characteristics are findable on the side of the object. So does it have the findable defining characteristics of a man or a woman? And now, of course, Prasankaka would say it depends on how you, you know, define the defining characteristics. Whereas the non-Prasankas would say, you know, no, on the side of the object, there's a defining characteristic. And Saltranta, Svatantrika would modify that and say, well, it's that defining characteristic plus the concept working together. Defining characteristic by itself doesn't establish it. So you have all these variations, these variants. So anyway, this is... Uh, an introduction to the topic of whole and parts, speaking about uh, syntheses, collection and kind syntheses, and differentiating them from categories. And the main point being that uh, 
when we talk about a whole, which is a collection uh, synthesis, that it is known simultaneously with its parts, and they don't have to know, even though it is an imputation on the parts, it's not like a, a non-congruent affecting variable, which is an imputation on its basis, in the sense that uh, in the case of these non-congruent affecting variables like persons, first you cognize the basis, you ascertain the basis, and then you're able to ascertain both the basis and the person, whereas here we are able to ascertain the whole and its parts simultaneously. In the kind. Pardon? Whole, part, and kind simultaneously. Whole, part, and kind also. Whole, part, and kind simultaneously, mm -hmm. right. And then in our following discussions, we will get into the part, into the topic of how, m how many parts do you need to know in order to, to, to see the whole thing, to say that you see the whole thing, what is the relation, which then fits into what I said when, we, when I introduced this topic, you know, how much of another person do you have to know in order to know the person? How much of ourselves do we have to know? I'm still trying to, you know, learn about myself. Trying to discover myself, to find myself. Well, how much do you have to know? And is it all happening at the same time? We only see one moment at a time. I mean, there are many ramifications of this topic. Okay, so let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding we have, whatever have gained, whatever uh, positive forces built up, may it act as a cause for all beings to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.